God's calling, God's leadership, and it's bringing him to the final destination of Rome, of where he's going to be able to testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, ultimately, 25 and 26, it is the interstate to which we get to our final destination, which is Rome, which we'll see next week when Andrew preaches. But, uh, before we begin, I want to kind of explain my title. That's the only thing that I really gave you on there, and I think it probably lends itself to some, some explanation. Um, because you're probably looking at it like, man, this is an odd title. All these things going on here. But let me, let me just explain myself. So the first piece is this, the providential God. And l- let me just say this. If you haven't learned anything from our, our whole study of Acts, if you've like tuned out the entire 24 chapters that we've gone through, just, let me just say this. God is providential. God's providence. And if you don't know what that means, that means God is orchestrating all these events and situations to bring out his purpose. So if you've missed the entire study of Acts where you've tuned out, that's what it's about. God is behind the scenes working things to bring about his purpose. God is providential. So I just basically told you everything that Acts is about in one statement. You can thank me later. Second thing is this. So the second part of my title, the problematic Paul. And you're like, you're calling Paul a problem? He's an apostle. What are you doing, Wes? You can't call Paul a problem. Well, he's not problematic for us. He's problematic for the people in this story. Paul is really a problem to the Jews. He is really a problem. And so you'll see all their actions. They're basically trying to get rid of this guy. They want him done. They don't want him around anymore. He's causing too many problems for them. And so he's problematic. So God is providential. Paul is problematic. That's it. And then the third piece is this. (laughs) which I thought this was kind of catchy. You might not think it's as cute, but I thought it was. Uh, The political pinball machine. Not only is Paul a problem for the Jews, but he's a problem for the Roman hierarchy. He is a problem. So you'll see all the things that are going on in Acts 25 and 26. He's being bounced around between people because Felix don't know what to do with Paul. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Like, he's innocent, but... People were kind of yelling at me that we should kill him, but I just don't think we should do that. So uh, uh, Festus will take care of him. Like, and so Festus gets on, he's like, he's innocent, I don't really know what to do with him. Agrippa will take care of him. And Agrippa's like, he's innocent, I don't really know what to do with him either. So he's in a political pinball machine, like being bounced around between people like, nobody knows what to do with this guy named Paul. And so he is just being bounced around within the Roman leadership, like, hey, I, maybe the next guy will do something with him. I don't know, but I don't know what to do with him. So he's a conundrum, he's a mystery, he's an enigma to the Roman hierarchy. They don't know what to do with this guy. And so that really kind of gives us the components of everything that we're going to get from Romans 20, or Acts 25 and 26. Those will really be kind of the, the roadmap by which we'll follow throughout these chapters. And so I'll, I won't be able to read the entire text to you, but I'll, I'll try and briefly kind of summarize as we go through each point, giving you the big details um, and then hopefully, hoping to, as I briefly overview each of those, is bring some of the main features and main components that uh, are in the text, uh, let them arise and see from the narrative. So let's look at the first point is this, the action-provoking promise. The action-provoking promise. So as I already said, we have a new leader on the scene. Festus has come in. Felix has, has gone out. Festus is up. And Festus is new leader, and so he's trying to please everybody. And so the first action that you get on, on, in the story is the religious leaders and the Jews come to him, and they say, hey, look, uh, we're glad you're new on the scene. We need you to do us a favor. And so you need to send Paul to Jerusalem, and on his way over there, we're going to ambush and kill him. 
That, that's the Jews and religious leaders. Now, we're going to kill him, so you need to send him to Jerusalem, Festus. Well, Festus wanting to kind of, he wants to follow the book on judicial order. He's like, nah, we're not going to do that. If you have a problem with this guy, Paul, if you've got a problem with him, then you need to go down to Caesarea, present your case before me, because Paul needs to hear the accusations too so he can stick up for himself as well. And, and that's the way that we're going to handle this judicial process. And so what happens is that goes about. The Jews, the religious leaders come down to Caesarea, and they present their case before, uh, before Festus, and Festus hears their claims, and then he, he tells Paul, hey, uh, defend yourself. And Paul says, I've done none of these things. I have not blasphemed the law or the temple, and I've not spoken or belittled Caesar in any way. And so he defends himself, and then Festus kind of puts Paul in a pretty uh, problematic situation where he says, okay, I'm going to do, kind of on the side, I'm going to do a favor for the Jews right now. Paul, would you like to go to Jerusalem and be tried there? Now you're like, what's the big deal with that? Well, Jerusalem is where all the Jews and the religious leaders are. So if Paul goes to Jerusalem and presents his case there, you know what they're going to do? Guilty. Kill him. It's that easy. But if he doesn't go to Jerusalem, he's stuck in Caesarea in prison and nothing's happening. So you see, Festus has put Paul in a, a pretty difficult situation between a rock and a hard place. He can either go to Jerusalem and be found guilty and killed immediately, or he can stay in Caesarea and continually be uh, imprisoned. And so he's in a rock and a hard place here. And at the beginning, you're thinking, well, Festus is going to, he's going to do justice. Like he wants to follow the book and, you know, of judicial order and do all these things. He's not going to let the Jews kill him immediately on an ambush. But in the end, he... He's not really acting very justly. He's putting Paul in a rock and a hard place to choose between these two. Well, what Paul does is he says, look, I, I want to I be treated justly. I want to have a just trial, a fair trial. So what he does as a Roman citizen, he says, okay, you're, you're accusing me of belittling Caesar? Then I want to appeal to Caesar. I want to see Caesar. I want to I go on trial before him. And so in the end, Festus says, okay, you appeal to Caesar? You got Caesar. And we might think, like, this is such an insignificant story going on here. You're like, what, what do we get from this? Like, this, this kind of means nothing. Yeah, okay, he's, he appeals to Caesar. Uh, what does this have to do with, with the whole story, even the story of the Bible? Well, before we pass over these details, we, we need, really need to see what Paul is doing here and what is kind of the end game. What's the end goal here? And let me just ask you a question. Where is Caesar located right now? Not right now, but right, Acts 25, 26, right now. Rome, right? Okay, what's significant about Rome? It's like the epicenter of the Roman Empire, right? It's like where everything is going down. And so Paul appeals there, and he says he wants to go to Rome. Well, I'm going to ask you to flip in your Bibles. Y'all know how to do that? Flip a couple pages back. Flip back to 1921. This is why Rome is significant. It's not just because it's the the political empire, but it actually has some theological significance. In 1921, it says this, Now after these events, Paul resolved in his spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. Okay, so internally, Paul's got something going on where he's like, I need to go to Rome. I need to go there and testify. Okay, now, I want you to turn to 23, chapter 23, verse 11. 23, verse 11. He says this. 
The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, so the Lord has appeared to Paul, says, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So Rome is theologically significant. Paul is not appealing to go to Caesar so he can get to Rome because it's like a legal maneuver. Like, hey, this will be the safest thing for me to do. I'll appeal to Caesar and I'll go to Rome. So I'll get out of trouble. I won't get killed in Jerusalem and I won't stay here in Caesarea. I'll I'll appeal to Caesar and I'll go to Rome. No, it's theologically significant because he already knows that I have an internal calling to go to Rome. And then he's had the risen Lord Jesus Christ appear to him and say, look, your goal is this, go to Rome and testify about Jesus Christ there. So Paul has the end game in mind of fulfilling the mission that he's been given, the commission that he's been given by Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, saying, you're going to tell about me in Rome. So he has that in mind. That's the driving factor for him, saying, look, I appeal to Caesar not because I'm trying to get out of something, but because I know that God has called me to go there to testify about him before many people and before Caesar. And I think there's something really significant that we can learn from this, is that... (laughs) What we, what we don't see is Paul saying, you know what? I believe in the providence of God. I believe that he's orchestrating all things to fulfill his purposes. So I'm going to sit back in my jail cell and just let him do his work. I, he's got it. We don't see Paul doing that. And we also don't see Paul like thriving and writhing his hands and biting his nails like, oh, I'm so anxious. What, what is God's will? What should I do? I don't know what to do in this situation. We don't see either of those. We don't see this passivity, and we don't see this unsure inactivity, if that makes sense. There's no passivity, and there's no unsure activity. Paul knows what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to go to Rome. He's supposed to testify in Rome about Jesus Christ. And you know what he does? He takes the measures to get to Rome. God didn't need to lay out this one, two, three, four, five, ten step process to get to Rome to fulfill the mission, right? Paul said, look, I know I'm going to go to Rome, so how do I get there? Well, you know what? I'll appeal to Caesar and I'll get to Rome. Easy. So he's not sitting there kind of figuring, what's God's will in this situation? What is he trying? I'm waiting for him to whisper in my ear just to tell me what to do next. He already knows what to do. And he takes wise counsel and just says, I'll appeal to Caesar and I'll go to Rome. And so I think for us, we can really learn from Paul's Paul's perspective here. Is that we know God's will, as 1 Thessalonians 4 says, God's will is our holiness. And so if there's times where you might be thinking, I don't know what God's will in this situation is. I don't know what to do right now, right here. I really wish God would speak in my ear. Well, Let me say this, God has spoken. God's spoken, and he's very clear in that his desire is our holiness. So if you think that you're going to mess up his plan because you chose to wear your red sweater instead of your blue sweater today, or you don't know whether to eat at Burger King or McDonald's, let me tell you, God's will is neither, so that you eat at Burger King or McDonald's. But it's really, we, we really create these dichotomies where, well, one's evil and one's good. And if I choose the wrong one, then God's going to be really displeased with me. Well, if, if neither of them are wicked or sinful, I, I don't think you're messing up God's plan. And so I think we learn that from Paul here. Is he's not trying to determine, I just don't know what to do. I don't want to mess up God's plan. I don't want to ruin what he's doing here. God has, 
God has already told Paul what to do. Be obedient, and you're to testify me in, a, in Rome. And so he's just taking the proper measures, that the doors that God has opened for him, saying, I'm, I'm going to go to Rome and be obedient there. So as Christians, as followers of Christ, God has not called us to be passive and sit back and say, I'm just going to wait on God. I'm going to let him do these things. I'm not going to act. No, he's actually called us to action. God's providence is not an excuse for inaction, but an exhortation to act, to be obedient to his commands. Here's the second point. Paul's innocence in the real issue. Have you ever been in an argument with somebody where they kind of accuse you of so many things and complain about you, and then you kind of like see straight through it and say, that's not the real issue, is it? You may have had this in maybe some marriage, you know, with your spouse, and maybe your spouse just uh, gets really angry at you and maybe complains about something that you, you did or are doing or something like that, and come to realize that the actual problem isn't any of the things that they're saying right there, but it's, you know, two or three weeks ago that you actually insulted them, and now it's just kind of coming to fruition right there. And I've never experienced that. I've only heard it from friends because uh, I don't know what a marriage argument looks like. Uh, right, babe? All right, good. So, but you realize, like, you, you see straight through it, like, I know you're complaining about all these things. I know you're making all these accusations. But that's not actually the real issue here, is it? And I think that's what we have here in Acts 25 and 26. Is that after Paul appear, appeals to Caesar, Festus is still confused what to do with this guy, Paul. He still doesn't really get, okay, he's appealed to Caesar, but I really don't know what to do. I ha- he has to write a letter to Caesar telling all the accusations and all, all these, and he doesn't know what to write to Caesar. So what does he do? Well, he gets Agrippa's help. King Agrippa is coming through town. He's like, hey, Agrippa, w- would you help me out here? Would you, would you, would you give, me, give me a hand with this Paul guy? I really don't know what's going on with him. Don't, don't know how to really figure this guy out. Would you hear his case and kind of give me a second opinion on this so I can have something to write to Caesar? Because uh, I can't send Paul uh, without a note telling everything that he's done wrong, and I just can't find everything that he's done wrong. So will you help me out? And so he does, and he hears, hears Paul's story, and Ultimately, what we find out from this interaction between Agrippa and, and Festus is this, we get two elements that come out that kind of rise to the top. As first is that we clearly see Paul is innocent. And that may sound insignificant to you, but Festus and Agrippa, both of them, see that Paul is innocent. They hear the accusations and they see they, it's not really that credible. They, they hear that they don't. The Jews who are making the accusations, they don't have any proof of what they're saying. And so they both realize that, look, this guy hasn't done anything wrong. He's actually innocent. And Luke has beautifully crafted this story right here to mimic the story of Jesus' trial. And I want to flip one more time. It's the last time we're going to flip in our Bibles to Luke 23. I want you to look at something real quick. Just, just the ironic and crazy similarities between Paul's trial and Jesus' trial. Luke 23. So keep your finger in Acts 25. And then put another finger in Luke 23. So I'm going to read out of Acts 25 just to show you a couple similarities. It says this. This is verse 18. This is Festus talking to Agrippa. He says, uh, when the accusers stood up, they brought no charges in his case of such evils as I supposed. 
But as Dr. David read earlier, rather they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. And then later in 25, it says this, but I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And then the last verse, or verse 31 in chapter 26, this is Agrippa saying, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. So both Festus and Agrippa realize, Paul hasn't done anything wrong. He's innocent. Now look at 23. I want you to kind of follow me through this story real quick of Jesus' trial. This is Pilate. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Okay, so Pilate looks at Jesus. Here's a story. Hadn't done anything wrong. Look at verse 14 of chapter 23. And said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Now, so Pilate twice has said, Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. He's innocent. And then what Pilate does is actually sends Jesus to Herod, say, Herod, you take care of him. Figure out what's wrong with this guy. Look at verse 15. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. He said, Herod couldn't figure him out either, what was wrong with him, what was guilty, and so he sent him back. And then look in verse 22. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. And then verse 24, look at this. Verse 23, I apologize. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. So like Pilate, Festus and Agrippa see that Paul is innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. But they don't free him because they want to please the Jews. Just like Jesus' trial. So Luke is intentionally structuring this story to show us just like Jesus was innocent and being falsely accused, so Paul too. But then Luke brings in a second piece, is that Festus not only understands that he's innocent, but he understands what the real issue is. Yeah, they're making accusations that he's blasphemed the temple and the law and he's belittled Caesar. But those aren't the real issues with the Jews. He realizes what the real issue with the Jews is. And as we've already seen in 25, what Dr. David read, says their problem is this. The Jews assert that, that Jesus was dead, but Paul asserts that Jesus is alive. He's saying the real issue isn't blasphemy or speaking bad about Caesar. The real issue is the resurrection. That's what they have a big problem with Paul about is the resurrection. Because they think, yeah, a resurrection is going to happen, but it's going to happen for us. What Paul's saying is, look, your resurrection was promised in the Old Testament, but it is realized in Jesus Christ. It is realized in him. But they do not believe that he is their Messiah. And so that's their real issue. It's not the temple. It's not Caesar. And so we get the innocence of Paul, and then we get the real issue. And it comes together in this story. And as you're reading it, you should feel this tension here. Like, okay, we see that Paul's innocent, and everybody realizes it. Festus and Agrippa all realize it, that he's innocent. But then on the other part, they realize also that the real problem is, isn't Caesar or the temple or the law, but is actually the resurrection, which is not a condemnable offense. He shouldn't be in prison for believing in the resurrection. And so you should be screaming, let him go! 
free him. You see that he's innocent, and you see that what he's espousing is not condemnable, is not imprisonable. Let him go. But what happens? He's not let go. And so you might be thinking, God, where are you? Where are you? Like, wouldn't it be better, better for you to intervene here and let Paul go so that he could share the gospel? Where are you? And I would say this is that we have to read this situation of Paul being seen as innocent and Festus and Agrippa realizing what the real issue is and not setting them free. We have to read it through the lens of, of uh, I'm not going to make you turn here. I'm just going to tell you about it. Acts 9.15, you can write that down. Is that when Saul was converted, when he was Saul, Ananias went to his house and the Lord told Ananias, you need to go there because this guy, he's going to testify about me to Gentiles and to kings. Well, what is Agrippa? He's a king. And so we have to look at this situation through the eyes of, of the commission that Paul's been given from his conversion. Is that his purpose was to testify about the Lord Jesus Christ to Gentiles and to kings. And what that means is that God is working through even keeping Paul in prison to fulfill his mission is that his intent is to keep Paul in prison so that he can share the gospel with Agrippa and even go farther to Caesar. And I know there's probably some in here who have felt a similar tension like this, who have felt, man, I, I feel like God is silent right now. I feel like he's inactive, maybe even kind of forgotten me in this situation. I, I don't hear him. I don't, I don't I don't feel like he's moving. I don't feel like he's being active and working anything out for me. But let me say this. Let me, let, me, let me just commend you on this. Don't let your senses fool you. Is that we say we don't, we don't see these things. We don't feel these things. We don't hear these things. Let me, let me just be honest with you. Your senses are flawed. All of our senses are flawed because of the fall. And so just because you don't see God acting, you don't see God moving, it doesn't mean he is not. And I know that sounds like a simple statement. It's intended to be. God is very simple in that. It's that though you may not see his hand actively in a situation, he is working and orchestrating things. The best example of this is the book of Esther. If you ever have time, read the book of Esther. God's name does not even appear in the book of Esther, but God is working throughout the entire book of Esther. That sounds contradictory contradictory but it happens God's name never appears in Esther but the entire time he is orchestrating events to bring about his mission of saving the Jews so that they wouldn't be annihilated so in your life when you feel like you're in, in a, a situation where it feels like God is silent here he's inactive I don't really know where he is at don't let your senses be your primary indicators of truth you may not see God, but he is behind the scenes working in all things, orchestrating all things wisely for our good and for his glory. Don't let your senses fool you. He is working. Here's the third point. The imprisoned evangelist. Paul speaks to Agrippa. So after this, Agrippa allows Paul to speak, and Paul goes to tell him about his upbringing, his background, basically his whole entire story and testimony. 
And he continues to tell that it's all about how he's been commissioned to tell people about this risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who has come on the scene to forgive sins. And he's come on the scene to bring all people to himself. That's Jew and Gentile. And that this story of Jesus is in continuity with the Jew story. And then after saying all this, Festus steps in on the scene and he says, you are insane, Paul. You are crazy. He literally says that. You are a crazy man, Paul. Your learning has made you crazy. And so Paul appeals to Agrippa. He says, look, Agrippa, you know the prophets. You know the prophets. Don't you believe this? And so a couple of components that we see in in Paul's speech is this. We see first Paul's testimony, which at this point in Acts, if you've been walking all the way through, you're like, I've heard Paul's testimony like 7 billion times right now. And I feel like I've heard his testimony more than I've heard my own. Because it's been repeated throughout the entire book of Acts, Paul's testimony. But it's essential here. Because he's wanting to level with Agrippa. He's saying, look, I have a background in Judaism. I I know the laws. I kept the Torah. I I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I did all these things. Let me level with you. I know where they're coming from with their accusations. I know what they're getting at. That's my background as well. And then he says, but something incredible happened. The risen Lord appeared to me on the road to Damascus. I was once blind, but now I can see. And he says that point to show that there's some objectivity there. It's that, look, this actually happened to me. And then the Lord spoke to him and said, basically, why are you kicking against the goads? Which we'll talk about that in a second. Why are you kicking against the goads? Why are you resisting my will, Paul? And then he commissions Paul. He opens up his eyes so that he sees, and he commissions Paul like God commissioned the prophets and says, this man is going to testify about me to all the nations. And so he tells him his story, the testimony of Paul's life to Agrippa. But not only that, but he gives also a defense. And it's a defense of the real issue. What, which was what? What was the real issue? The resurrection. The resurrection was the real issue. So Paul wants to defend that. He says, look, he, and he defends it two ways. He defends it kind of apologetically. Look, look at verses 6 through 8 in chapter 26. Let's read this. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this I hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why, this is a great verse, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now, here's his, here's his apologetic defense. He says, okay, let's just work this, let's work this out. So, Jews, the Jews believe that God created everything, the heavens and the earth. Is it really that insane that he might raise somebody from the dead? Like, y'all see that logic? Like, okay, so you believe in a God who created everything out of nothing. Everything that has been made has been brought into existence by God. Is it, is it really that insane to think he could raise a man from the dead? That's his apologetic defense. It's not that crazy if God created everything that he could raise somebody from the dead as well. But then he gives another another defense. He does a a Bible defense. Look at this. Verses 22 in chapter 26. Verse 22, chapter 26. To this day I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said will come to pass. Basically saying, here's my defense. I'm not saying anything cute anything unique, anything rare, anything that's opposite of what the Jews saying. I, I, I'm saying that this is what Moses and the prophets said. 
Basically, he's telling them, look, yeah, I, I'm not, I, I'm reading the same Bible you are, and it talks about a resurrection of a Messiah and him being the Son of God, Jesus Christ. If you would just read your Bibles, Jews, you'd understand that as well. That's his defense. Like, look, my evidence is coming from the same place that you're making accusations from, is that I'm not saying anything different than what Moses and the prophets said. That's his defense to Agrippa. That's why I believe in the resurrection. It's not that crazy that the God of the heavens and the earth could raise somebody from the dead. And two, the Bible says it. But another component of, of Paul's speech to Agrippa is that it ultimately becomes evangelistic. Is that he begins to talk with Agrippa and tell him about Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, who's come on the scene to forgive sins and to bring in even the ostracized of society, the Gentiles. And that this is what God has done to confirm that he is the Savior. He's raised him from the dead. And one of the greatest interactions in all of Acts is this. It's so great. In 26, look at this. This is, this is the end of 26. He starts talking with Agrippa, and Agrippa's like, okay, wait. Are you trying to make me a Christian, Paul? Like, he really says that. Are you trying to persuade me? And Paul says, I'm, I'm trying to persuade anybody who's in the distance of my voice, who can hear my voice, to be like I am, to be a follower of Christ, except for these chains. That's what he says. I would persuade any person who can hear my voice now to become a follower of Christ except these chains. And so ultimately, his conversation with Agrippa, his speech to Agrippa, becomes evangelistic, where he wants to take this opportunity as he stands before a king to share the gospel with him of the resurrected Messiah, Jesus Christ. Regardless of the situation environment, Paul wants to share the gospel. And I, again, I think we learned something from what Paul's doing here. Is that as God's people, we need to steward our circumstances. I know personally, I need to do that better. And I know we talk about stewardship with money and things like that, but we need to steward circumstances. Because right now, in this situation, Paul in prison before a king, you might be thinking, Paul, just get out of prison. Just... Just basically say what you need to say just to get out of there. Don't make it long, make it short. Just say what you need to say and get out of there. But that's not Paul's mentality. It's not skipping over something, trying to, trying to rush through something so you can get to the next situation, which is what our culture says. Hey, you don't like something, just get through it, push on through it, get to the other side of things. Paul's like, this is a perfect opportunity for me to stand before a king and before many people and testify to Jesus Christ. And for us, I think that's really important. Is that we think, hey, yeah, I'll, I'll do that once the next mission, mission trip rolls around. Or the next time we do door-to-door evangelism. Or the next time you know, that event happens. Or when I retire, I'll do those kind of things. That's not how the Bible speaks. The Bible speaks about sharing and living the gospel right now. Not waiting for the next situation stewarding our circumstances now. And for you, that might mean sitting in line at the DMV, as terrible as that may be. What an opportunity and circumstance, not to just plow through something and get it done, to actually see it as an opportunity. Standing in line at the grocery store or interacting with your colleagues at work or maybe even disciplining your children is that all these are opportunities and circumstances not to get through and just push through, 
but to actually be a good steward of with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we see Paul doing here is living this resurrected life. The doctrine of the resurrection is not just a, a doctrine, it's a life. As a new creation, we're living resurrected people seeking to transform lives by constantly living out this new creation life through speaking the gospel, through living the gospel. Steward your circumstances. And that was really convicting for me as I read through Paul's, what Paul's doing. Because I'm, I'm reading this thinking, Paul, just get through this. Just say, hey, I'm innocent and this is why I'm innocent. Let's get me out of here. But no, taking the time to say, this is my story, this is my message. Will you believe? Point number four. Goad kicking the neglect of justice and the resistance of truth. I just want to be very clear. I'm saying goad kicking, not goat kicking. I just want to be very clear with that in case somebody writes that on their outline. Goad kicking. So at the end of the narrative, at the end of the story, Paul's innocence is further confirmed. Agrippa finds him innocent. Festus has found him innocent. And you're thinking like, oh, they're going to set him free. But what happens at the end of 26? He's not set free. He's not let go. They don't find him guilty, but they don't intervene to set him free. And so this phrase, goad kicking, happens in 2614. I'll just read this for you. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And the reason I want to just kind of just focus on this phrase right here is because it seems to be a good summary or a picture of the Jews and the Roman leadership that we get right here. Goad kicking. And so, what do you, you might be saying, what is goads? What is kicking against the goads? Well, a goad is a sharp instrument that is used to, to direct an unruly animal in the right direction. And so the metaphor was used to uh, basically how one's actions depicted their stubborn resolve to resist God's plan and will. As we saw that in Paul's life, he was persecuting the church, killing Christians, and Jesus appeared to him saying, why, why are you kicking against the goads? Why are you kicking against my plan, my will? And ultimately, he could kick no longer. He had to submit to the will of God because his efforts were futile and vain to kick against the goads. And so one reason that this phrase happens here and nowhere else in Paul's stories, every time he tells his testimony, he never, he never includes kicking against the goads. But one reason I think he includes it here in chapter 26 is because it really depicts the character characters of the Jews and of Festus and Agrippa in their responses to Paul and his ministry. So you see the Jews, their response to his ministry... They want to assassinate the guy on the way to Jerusalem, right? They, they want to accuse him. They want to say he's doing all these things which he's not doing. And then they want to kill him on the way to Jerusalem. And then you see Festus and Agrippa, who are supposedly supposed to be the Justice League there, right? They're supposed to be the guys who are doing justice and following the book on judicial order and concluding that Paul is free because that's the right conclusion. They're supposed to be the ones doing justice. Yet how Paul shows us in his character and what Luke narrates here is that Festus and Agrippa, in their resistance to the truth, they see that the real issue is not blasphemy or speaking ill against Caesar, but the real issue is the resurrection. And they see that Paul is innocent. They resist the truth by not actually coming out and saying, we need to intervene and say, he's free. 
And so the Jews are kicking against the goads because they hate Paul and want him to die, and Festus and Agrippa are kicking against the goads because they won't set him free even though they've seen that the real issue is the resurrection and that he's innocent in all his ways. And so, ultimately, what they're doing is that they're going against the will of God. And what I think Paul includes, I think the reason Paul includes it here is to show that ultimately they will not succeed in whatever they're doing. They will not succeed. And so let's bring all this to kind of a conclusion. Let's kind of draw in the pieces of the puzzle together and look at this. So we first saw, we saw Paul's obedience to the mission he had been called to to testify in Rome, and then he took the proper, proper route to do that. And then we saw God's purposeful, purposeful hand in his imprisonment. You might be thinking, why, why don't God just let him go? Well, God keeps him there, and he, he allows Festus and Agrippa to see his innocence and see the real issue, but still not let him go so that he can testify to kings and proclaim the gospel to kings, as Acts 9.15 says. And then we saw Paul's evangelistic zeal, despite the current situation, that it would be been a really easy thing for Paul to take a vacation, but he didn't. And then we saw that, ultimately, the resistance to the truth, kicking the goads, is ultimately a resistance to God's will. And we see that in Festus and Agrippa and the Jews. So how do we, how do we take some of this home? It was such a odd chapters that just look like a bridge to Rome that, hey, let's just pass this way and get to 27 and 28 because that's where the real stuff goes on. What can we learn from this? Well, ultimately, what I think we can learn is that this obedience and the providence of God have to be held hand in hand. Is that we as Christians, we've read the Bible and we've read Revelation and, and who wins? Jesus wins. Good. I'm glad we got there. Jesus wins at the end of Revelation. He rules justly, and he defeats the powers of sin, death, and hell, and Satan. And so he wins. So knowing the end, knowing that God in Christ wins, that should provoke urgency and action now. Knowing God wins should provoke urgency and action now. And the best way that I can try and exemplify this for you is this. Just follow me on this example. It's the difference between a nuclear fallout shelter and a foreign embassy. So in light of all the, the nuclear scares that's going on, people are building these nuclear fallout shelters. You've heard of these? They're thousands of dollars built in the mountains underground so that you know if there ever becomes a scare, you can run in there and hide from all society and all humanity and be saved from it. And so seclude yourself there. But then you get a foreign embassy, which is you're basically putting yourself right in the midst of a different type of people. And that's the difference here. Is that knowing the end, knowing that God wins in Christ, is that it's the difference between living among the darkness and acting to push it back, which is the foreign embassy, Versus secluding ourselves from the darkness and passively waiting and allowing it to permeate and spread. That's the, that's the fallout shelter. That's what people do. They want to get in the fallout shelter, hide from humanity, hide from society, seclude themselves so it, it's all going, going off around them. Let it happen. Rather than putting yourself in the foreign embassy, the outpost, and saying, 
We're going we're gonna to sit in the middle of the darkness and work it there. So that's what I would say. Knowing that God wins shapes our lives. And it doesn't call us to seclusion from humanity and society. It calls us to urgency and desire to live out the gospel and act on the gospel now, to seek justice now, to do mercy now, to walk humbly now, to live like Christ now. Knowing that God wins, knowing his providence, should not call us to seclusion, but should call us to action. So we have to figure out how to do that in our workplaces, in our families, in our societies. How do we walk justly, humbly, and do mercy and live like Christ? The next is this, is that resistance is futile. And that, as we know from what the Bible says, every knee will bow in heaven and earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And that's either in humble, loving submission now, where upon the last day you'll be ushered in to the presence of God, enjoying His goodness, or your knee will bow and your tongue will confess in fearful condemnation on the last day when you are judged for your rebellion and sin. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God, as Hebrews 10 says. And so I would plead with you, as Paul pleads with Agrippa, Wes, are you trying to persuade me to follow Christ? Yes, I am. And I'd pray that anybody that can hear my voice would hear this, that you are broken and needy, and that is because of your sin. It's not because of society and what it's done to you or the wrongs that you've been done by somebody else. No. You are a sinner, and you are broken, and you need to be fixed. And you can try many ways to try and fix your problems. Alcohol, drug abuse, money, and fame. You see how those have worked out for people? It hasn't. What you need is Jesus Christ to fix your problem of sin. And I plead with you today, confess your sin today. Submit to His Lordship today. Because if you wait, you will not meet Him with joy and gladness at Judgment Day, but fearful condemnation. And you do not want to fall into the hands of an angry God. So I persuade you even today, Christ is here and ready to receive you. And that His blood He has shed for our sins. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. And God, that all of it has purpose and meaning. Even Acts 25 and 26, that seemed just like a bridge. It even has meaning for us today that we need to hear your word. So I pray, God, let our hearts be stirred to be obedient in line with your providence, God, that you are God who orchestrates all things. And God, let anyone who sits in here who does not know Jesus Christ feel compelled and convicted of sin and turn and run to Jesus Christ.
Lord, we thank you again for your marvelous grace and mercy that you showed to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing. I will glory in my Redeemer, whose priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer, who crushed the worship together as a church family, and uh, we want to thank Wes for his preparation and delivery this morning. For community time, I've got a couple of ways that uh, you can serve, and also some important uh, things coming up for our church family in the next uh, few weeks. Uh, but let me first of all say that uh, on both, both of these Sundays, on either side of Thanksgiving, there are no Sunday night uh, activities. You do? Can somebody clarify that? Okay. I'm going to assume we do not, so I hope that's correct. I hope that's correct. 
I know there are no equipping classes for the adults, children, all of those other activities, so uh, I hope that's accurate. Um, so a couple of ways you could serve. Um, we are, if you've noticed in your church bulletin, uh, going to whoever can, whoever signed up to do that and, and can stay after uh, church this morning uh, for decorating the campus for Christmas. Uh, you've seen that uh, announced before, so if you can, uh, let's meet in the, the uh, fellowship hall and, and uh, we'll, we'll go from there as far as decorating the campus. Uh, it'll be if you've never done that before, it's always a fun time. Even though it's work, it's always a fun time to, to stay and do that. Um, also, we need two more volunteers uh, for St. Vincent de Paul. Again, you see that in your bulletin. That's for November 22nd, this coming Wednesday evening, serving uh, at St. Vincent de Paul. They're, they have a couple of volunteers but need, need some more. So we really need to know that today. Uh, Michelle, I think everybody knows Michelle. Her hand's up in the, the back on, on my right, your left. Uh, see her uh, immediately after service if you can help uh, in that way. Um, then two business-related things. I hope you all noticed, I'm sure you did, in your worship folder are our nominees for management team for uh, serving the next three years. So we uh, we have uh, five good nominees that, that you, the church family, have put uh, into nomination. Uh, these folks have been interviewed and are ready to go. Uh, we will be voting on two of these. Uh, we have, we'll have, be having two open slots. We'll be voting on two of these uh, on November 10th, as you see there. So be praying about that. Be praying about how God wants you uh, to, to vote. And uh, in, in if uh, we do this so that you can know who these people are, if you have some questions for them, uh, uh, talk to them, uh, get to know.